It is your primary economic vehicle in the world. You gave up your career to do this in some sense, right? Your identity is attached to it. And now all of a sudden you got this cash pile that's dwindling every year. And every single next idea you have is smaller than the one you just sold by definition, unless you want to go out and become a new kind of entrepreneur and raise venture capital or whatever it is. And so I do think there's a lot of like just simple frameworks and thought experiments to walk yourself through before you exit a business that, you know, experience people know about. And we didn't reach out to those people. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy, Extra Guac, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk to my very best friends, Dan Andrews and Ian Schoen of Tropical MBA and DynamiteJobs.com. Now, these guys started working together 15 years ago. Now, that's before the internet started. And they were making cat furniture and valet stands. Today, they run Tropical MBA, which is a community of events and podcasts for location-independent entrepreneurs. Now, they started podcasting before it was a money-making thing. They worked remotely before people even knew where these countries were. And now they've started a remote hiring platform so other people can work and live how they have for decades. Check them out at tropicalmba.com. And if you're looking for remote work or you want to hire remote workers, dynamitejobs.com. Now, these are my best friends, and it's an amazingly fun episode. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Here's three hygienic things you're going to take away. One, exposing yourself to higher levels of success so you can dream bigger dreams. Ooh, that's good. Two, how to align with business partners so you can get through the low points. Three, using the corner office test to decide if a job is the career you want. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more air nuggets and business ideas along the way. Before we jump into the episode, go check out appsumo.com slash Noah. That's me. We've got the best daily deals on software. So if you are looking to start or grow an online business, go to appsumo.com slash Noah and join our newsletter to find out all the latest and greatest deals on software. Also, if you're creating software, sell it on appsumo.com slash sell. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Timonda8. I feel like I know you. He left a review saying, Noah is a boss. Love this guy. He's super real. No BS advice on starting businesses, marketing, funny, and smart guy who gets awesome people on his podcast. Keep it up, Noah. You keep it up too. And every other one of you gorgeous listeners, I love you. If you want to shout out in a future episode, post a review wherever you listen to the show. I check every single one of them. Can you introduce yourself again? Just like that. My name is Dan Andrews from Tropical <laughs> MBA Podcast. <laughs> and? Hey, I'm Ian. I'm also at Tropical MBA. And you have your brand new website. Dynamite Jobs. Can you try to say that at the same time? One, two, three. Dynamite, Dynamite jobs. jobs. All right. This show, you guys know, when people talk about No King Presents show, it's hard hitting. <laughs> I'm Facts, nervous. Science. Investigations. <laughs> right now, what are the three most important things in your life? I think that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> I'll take that question. God, country, and cycling. <laughs> it's, it's not surprising. <laughs> Close fourth would be our collective families and business ventures. Various websites, GoDaddy accounts, investment. <laughs> Tell me more about your the most important things in your life and how does that direct how you live? Well, okay, so I'm going to I'm going to set the stage a little bit. We're all here in Barcelona, Spain. We've all been coming here together for several years now. Uh, what do we do when we're in Barcelona? We work together here at the co-working space, which I find totally enjoyable. We screw around. We make jokes. We have fun. Family dinners, live within a block of each other, and then we cycle basically every other day. Those are the things that are important here, man, now, is us three having a good time. It's amazing to be uh, post-COVID summer again in Barcelona. Hot boy summer. That's how we're living at 40. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find that, that one of the things that's interesting about how we've decided that it's like God, country cycling are the three things that matter most here. It's kind of a joke, but I, I was reflecting on it today at the park and 
it's nice that it's like, all right, if it's Dan, Ian, or cycling, that's pretty much what I do. And the other things outside of that, you know, family a little bit. Uh, it's easy to say no to things. It's kind of nice when you have like a little bit more of that direction in life. You guys notice that at all for being out here? 100%. Well, I think the the biggest change out here is like, you don't have your obligations that you have back in Texas that we all have, right? It's like, there's all these things that like pull you in all these different directions, basically, because that's where your life is. That's where your primary life is, at least for me. And I think you guys too. And so you have all these obligations and here a bunch of that just melts away. I mean, you can see that just in the Amazon account, for example. It's like, <laughs> I don't order anything on Amazon here, yet I still have everything I need. But like when you're back at home, it's like you have five Amazon packages coming today. You got all these phone calls you got to make. You got all the stuff you got to do. And here it just kind of like melts away and you can kind of focus on the three things, God, country, and cycling. Amen. Amen. So you guys, you guys have been business partners for how long now? Over 10 years. God, I should know this off the top of my head. Two th- 2007. 15 years. Almost. What, do you guys celebrate the anniversary? Uh, we missed a diamond. We were going to get each other diamonds for 10 years. I guess we missed that. <laughs> we couldn't afford it. <laughs> so for maybe context for people who don't know about Tropical NBA podcast or your first business and then what you're doing now, can we give it like a little bit of overview and what started 15 years ago? Yeah. That's where we are today. 15 years ago, um, Ian showed up at a, a dive bar with some designs for <laughs> pet furniture and key control furnitures and, and he's like man you can't tell anybody about this if i'm gonna open up this notebook right now and he opened up the notebook and it was like shining with these designs and business ideas i was kind of like cool this guy's got like business ideas and at the time i was doing web stuff and so we we're like let's put these business ideas on the web and you know we were at the time also experienced manufacturers and so one thing led to another and a couple years later we found ourselves as owners of uh, essentially an e-commerce company that designed its own products and we ended up running that until 2015. Started telling the story on podcasts like this in 2009. We thought it was kind of interesting that we were doing physical products as a way to make money and as a way to have location freedom. Like everybody talking about that on podcasts at the time were essentially selling like Dan Kennedy courses or how to make money online. And we were like, we are selling cat furniture. That is novel. So we started podcasting about it. And that led to our second business, which is a community-oriented business of events and podcast and a private community for location independent entrepreneurs. And just recently during COVID, we started our next thing, which is a remote first hiring platform. So we do remote recruiting and just all kinds of services around growing your remote team. That's Dynamite Jobs. So that's kind of the overview. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. 15 years. (laughs) Two parts of that story I want to unpack a little bit. Podcasters have to say unpacking. Like you can't have an episode without that word in it. Of course. First off, you guys met because Ian got a job at a product factory. What, what was the story with this? Yeah, we were both working at, um, Dan hired me, actually. It was uh, uh, designing store fixtures. So like you go into your local Walmart, Petco, like the things that the products hang on, we were manufacturing those basically in China. And Dan hired me as a designer there. And then two pieces with that is one, what made you think you could go out on your own and, and make it happen? And then why pet furniture to start? It's a good question. Uh, Pet furniture, uh, I I went to school for product design, physical product design, and I had some pet ideas um, when I was in school. I think I was like taking a course and I designed some pet products. It was actually sponsored by a pet company. So I had these designs that I thought were kind of cool. At the time, there was a lot of products for dogs, not so many for cats, but you know, cats are a huge market too. So we started making pet furniture, uh, cat furniture specifically. You know, Dan jokes about the cat thing. It was actually the least profitable 
part of that business that we But owned. the most innovative. It was definitely the most innovative. But we made all our money on uh, valet parking equipment and portable bars, basically. So industrial furniture, key cabinets, things like that. So we had a couple different factories that we work with in China. And the reason why I felt passionate about going on my own was just a simple corner office test. So working at this company, making store fixtures, uh, Dan and I kind of had this idea. It's like, uh, put yourself in the corner office, like basically the best office in that building and like, see if you like it. See if you like the view, see if you like the responsibility, see if you like the people. And for me at that organization, like I did that experiment and I was like, number one, I don't like to look at the parking lot. <laughs> We're in like Oceanside, California. I was like, uh, I have a great view of the parking lot. This sucks. So I was like, I got to get out of here, number one. And number two, I was like, no, I don't really like working with these people. Like, I didn't like my boss. I thought that I was going to hit a ceiling in the organization. Like, it wasn't going to work out for me working for someone else. Like, it was at that job where I figured out, like, I have to work for myself. This is the only way forward. And so approached Dan because I knew that he had kind of similar feelings about it. Like, just being a little anxious, like kind of stuck in the organization. And we decided to make a go of it. How long was it from idea to first dollar? Well, geez, in that business, it was a while. So you have to figure a couple things happen. One, I think we we're very fortunate because we partnered with the owner of that business that we were working for. Basically came to him in a meeting. We we're like, hey, we want to start this new thing. We got a lucky break. He partnered with us. Eventually, we ended up buying him out like two years later. But for us, I mean, you got to imagine physical products, e-commerce, huge upfront costs. Like we basically floated, I think, one or two containers full of our products that first go, it was like $50,000 or something like that. I mean, these are two guys like two years, three years out of college with like no money. So our partner helped us like finance that container. Luckily, we made it back within, I think, a couple months, three to six months, paid them back and then had enough profit to kind of keep the next container going. We also made our first dollar doing the Tim Ferriss thing where we put up a fake landing page with a buy now button. And we made, I want to say three sales. And we refunded everybody and we asked them why would they buy something that doesn't actually exist and then remind ourselves that it did. We, it was our bad. <laughs> but it was a photo. You're blaming them. It was yeah. a photo of our valet parking stand. And we, I don't know if we ran ads to it or what, but they bought it. I remember we were sitting in a cafe, like having our normal like post-party brunch. And we were like, holy goodness, someone actually bought this thing that we put up on the web that we hadn't even really fully designed yet. And it took a long while to get to the point where we were ordering containers and like cash flowing the whole thing. Even our first shipment, all the design was screwed up and we had never really made products like that robust before that like had such a high demand. Like store fixtures, they're short run manufacturing. Like you just pump them into the store, they last for six months and you put new stuff in. Another thing about that company that's kind of interesting is I was sort of on a heater in my career where like store fixtures are correlated with real estate. So at that time, our company was experiencing all-time growth. And the business owner was in a very busy stage of his life with his family and his kids and everything. So he sort of just like tossed the business my way. And I sort of got all the credit for the growth. And so my career was like going like this, like this. And I was like reading all these books to try to figure out how do you run a company? And so that was sort of what Ian and I were connecting about, like this concept of entrepreneurship. Like, oh my God, we're young. We're in our 20s. We're running this company with 30 employees. Like, what do we do? And we would come to the owner and be like, we're running a contract manufacturing business. That's not nearly as efficient as running a product business because we're having to like reboot for every single client. And he was very amenable to that. He was like, yeah, this sucks. Like we, we should do something about it. And so we're basically like, how about the three of us do something about it? 
Ian's got some ideas. And that was sort of the spark that got him on board. One story that I've never heard from you, Ian, but recently was that like when you came to San Diego, you were working retail or you had some real basic ass job and you were like literally pooling money with your roommate to get by? Yeah, actually moved to San Diego and was trying to figure out how to be a product designer. And so I always knew that I wanted to live in California. I kind of landed in San Diego because I was there for like 30 minutes a year before. I mean, these are the kinds of uh, great (laughs) life decisions that you make in your 20s. (laughs) Moved out with my good friend and he was working with me. So we were both working valet parking jobs and then we were both working at this restaurant. And so we basically had the same jobs in the same place. And like one of us would show up to one place and one of us would show up to the other place. They just put our name on the schedule, both of our names on the schedule. And then at the end of the night, we would just come home, like put all our money in the middle of the floor and we would divide it up. And like, that's how we lived for the first six months when we were there. We're like basically a team trying to figure it out. Fast forward to today, and he's our lead recruiter of our Dynamite Jobs. And essentially, we do the same thing. We come... You guys do this thing at the table a lot. Yeah. How did you feel about that time when you had almost no money, you're working at a restaurant and a valet? How do you reflect our feeling of that time? It was amazing. I mean, it was like right out of college. It was like, you know, Dan has a similar story. Like he was in bunk beds before I met him like 30 <laughs> miles up north. Four dudes in like one bedroom apartment or whatever it was. So I think we were all like living this California dream. Like we, we, we're from the East Coast. Like we moved to California. You were already there. It was amazing to us. Like the weather, the vibe, everything was like super cool. But, you know, it was a time where we were free, basically. But eventually I started to get anxious because I'd gone to school for four years. I had what I thought was a decent skill set, product design. And like there were basically no product design jobs in San Diego. So I'd say I was like two or three months away from like moving somewhere. And I thought it was going to be Los Angeles where the jobs were before I met Dan. What was your origin story with that? I tried to convince my college friends, we were in Southeast at Clemson, to move to Austin because I was like vaguely interested in publishing. And I knew Austin had like a big educational press industry at the time. And unfortunately, MTV had the real world San Diego just a few years before. I'm in my early 20s. I'm completely broke. I do not have a cell phone. I do not have a car. I am broke. And, you know, four of my best friends are like, we're all moving to California. And I'm like, sure. I don't have any skills or prospects. But I knew I wanted to essentially move to a major metro that I could basically try and get a job. Because I knew I wasn't going to be in academia, which was sort of something I had been feeling out. But ultimately discovered that I wouldn't ever really have any prospects to control my location or my income. And so I just kind of had this vague idea of like, well, I guess you need to get rich then. And that was basically where I was at. And at that time, me and my best friend ended up jumping in his car and driving out to California. And then you shared an apartment? Did you have the job right away? No, I mean, I, I basically went through a bunch of temp jobs, you know, and it was kind of interesting that my university degree basically provided no value. But it was the fact that I had worked in warehouses growing up that people were attracted to and eventually got myself a job at K2, the sporting goods company, as an import-export logistics clerk. So I learned about, you know, importing from China and stuff like that. And you were living in one room with four bunk beds? We were living four guys in a two-bedroom in Mission Hills in San Diego. Well, my rent might have been 400 bucks, something like that. My portion of it, we had air mattresses next to each other. I believe that I brought like a computer with like a big monitor and like a big, like a 486 or whatever like it was. I mean, I don't think we had internet service though because we couldn't afford that. These are early days, this is like 2005. And I remember when Ian and I started our first business, we were like charting out our dream lines. It was like, 
what could our lives be one day? This is 2007. And we're doing it right out of the four-hour workweek book. What do you want to be? What do you want to have? What do you want to do? And I remember I was like, I want to have a laptop. Because <laughs> <laughs> then I could work from a cafe or I could work from another state. And at the time, that sounded like a really immense goal to set for myself. I hope in this interview so far, we've conveyed like the kind of pedigree that Dan and I have come from. Like <laughs> 2006, we're still aspiring to each have laptops. So. Did you have a dream similar or what was your dream? Yeah, it was similar. I mean, we did our, our dream line together. I think that Dan and I both like felt like we could help each other and we found each other in that moment, you know, working at that job. I felt like it was a bit of a dead end with the people that I was working with. Like I was like, I got to get out of this. I got to own my own thing. I think that we all had ambitions of having more money than we had grown up with. And certainly, you know, coming to California, it was like such an eye opener. You know, you saw like people my age, like in their early 20s, like driving new cars. I was just like, I couldn't understand how it was happening. I was like, how did these people get money? You know, I was like, how? And then like in California too, there's this thing like where hardly anybody works too. My mind was blown. I just like couldn't understand how it was happening. And I didn't feel like California was a land of opportunity at all. I felt locked out the whole time I was there. Like, it was so hard to penetrate these questions. They felt so intimidating. How are, like, literally there's a hundred homes that are all worth a million dollars lined up next to each other. I have no idea how this is happening. You know, this is four or five X the factor of what I'm seeing back home. And even then that felt daunting. So now we're in this whole new context and there's not a lot of opportunities for us here. Because we're not moving here to be a music producer or a rap star or whatever. I'm trying to like, I'm just trying to like make some sales or do some back end office stuff or whatever. And so I thought that was like uh, definitely something that us and all of our friends felt. I saw this great tweet from Moses Kagan, who's a real estate developer in LA. And he was talking about how he sees like waves of people like us sort of come out to California. And there's this, this great attrition, like the tide, nine of us end up back home because we can afford it or whatever. And I felt like, you know, we were two of those guys that just couldn't figure out a way to make it in California. A few things you said I thought were really great is having a dream, right? Like you guys both had a dream and it was aligned. It was like, hey, we want to make some more money. We want to live a different lifestyle. We're here. And I think the other part of being there was that you know that there's, holy shit, there's like another level. Like if you're never around it, you don't know it even exists. And then you see it and you're like, like I grew up, I didn't know different in terms of like what you can do from a professional point. I was like, oh yeah, of course you work at a tech company where you try to start your own tech business. The other thing that's really fascinating, and I think it, it's very, maybe not talked about as much, but some of the most best moments were these like real crappy, challenging moments. Like, I kind of knew you were going to say that like when you were literally pulling your money after working retail and valet, how great it was, <laughs> right? You're like, it was hard and it was challenging and fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's different now, but it, it can be fun to go through that struggle. The other thing that, that you guys commented on just to highlight to other people is that you worked valet and you went on to build valet stands. Dan, you were interested in academia and publishing and you went on to do podcasting. So there's some kind of like through line of like taking what you're already experiencing or understanding and then how do you kind of use that as an asset into future businesses with your guys' partnerships. You started doing these things. I was curious, what's what's been like a, the lowest point of your partnership during maybe the first first half or first 10 years of it? And then how did you guys get through it? Oh, geez, hard hitting questions here. I think the challenge with having a partnership that's like gone on this long is basically we're in a marriage model, right? So it's like, We've been together like nearly 15 years. You know, we're in a relationship because I can't remember how many years we've been together too, <laughs> which is pretty common. But I think that there's always going to be highs and lows, you know, and I think you have to figure out a way through that. And there's just some structural things to that. Like 
know we've talked about this before like in a relationship with somebody that you care about like you never say anything that could potentially like blow the relationship up completely like you just don't go there you wouldn't go there with your significant other you don't go there with your business partner so you know you look at it as something that's going to try and survive forever that you do like with your best friends and in these relationships that are really important so i think our lowest points have always been when we have the least amount of alignment and that's generally when we're not talking about our alignment. After we exited the business in 2015, like we didn't have a bunch of alignment is because we weren't talking about it a lot. Pre-COVID, we got together and we got a lot more alignment. And that's how we started this new thing, Dynamite Jobs. So always the lowest points have been when we're not connected or we're not aligned in the same trajectory. Yeah, it's the double-edged sword of being an entrepreneur is that you have margin to like make decisions that aren't necessarily, there's no one holding you accountable, essentially. It's a trap you can fall into as an entrepreneur. You don't have to opt into systems of responsibility or accountability because, hey, we've done really well. And so we don't have to. And I think that's something that we're facing right now, which is we have this goal of building a more meaningful enterprise. We have a next set of dreams, like what we want to do in our 40s. And it's a challenge for both of us to opt into the amount of like responsibility that that's going to be for us to do that. Because it would certainly be easy for us to make our internet monies, you know, and have it come in or put up a couple smaller sites and we could be fine doing that, you know, but I think we both want to do something bigger. And that's, that's the same feeling as going to the retail shop, honestly, and pulling the money in the middle is, you know, you don't know if you're going to come home with the money and you don't know if it's going to make the rent, but it's like going through that, I think is like the reward in the end. Yeah, the other thing too, I think that's worth noting is like, you know, in these partnerships is like Dan and Maya's dreams were basically the same in our 20s, right? It was like pretty easy to come together on a dream. It was like, hey, I'd like to have more than $20 in my bank account, you know? It's like we agreed on that, you know? But as like you get older, I think like it's natural for people's like dreams and desires to change. So it's like you have to stay aligned on the things that you both want. And I think as long as there's, you know, some commonality in the things that you both want, you can make it work. But I think in some cases, like people just go in completely different paths. So it's probably because we've been together so long that we kind of still want a lot of the same things, you know, but there has to continue to be like commonality and dreams. And so we still talk about this stuff. What was the difference in alignment after you sold? You know, most people would imagine like I have a job, I had a dream and you actually made the dream. You're like, we now have millions of dollars. Where were the different directions you guys wanted to go? afterwards and then how did you guys just talk it out to solve it what were the different ways of thinking about that we probably didn't communicate like i said it was probably a low point in our partnership we probably didn't talk as much as we should have you know like after we sold that company like i went and like bought a piece of property and like worked on that property i had a kid and so like i was pursuing like more personal interests at that point and i think like we weren't talking about the business that much so you know again i think it was like a low point i think we could have come together earlier and been like hey, we just did this thing. It was really great. It was a sale. You know, we're conflicted about the sale too. Like, should we do it? Should we not do it? Dan wrote a book about it. I did. Available at fine booksellers everywhere. <laughs> Through the exit? It's called Before the Exit. Yeah. So again, I think we could have like got together earlier on that stuff. But you know, what ended up happening was basically I took two years off to kind of pursue personal interest, but like we never really talked about it explicitly, what was going on. So that was problematic in our relationship. This is really common. It's like, I just talked to an entrepreneur the other day who sold his business for many multiples of what we did. And he was expressing the same feeling of feeling down after he had sold his business and feeling directionless. And I think if we could do it again, I was just like hearing Ian give that answer. And I was like, man, I wish we would have had some kind of guide. 
like just someone that we like both agreed we trusted that would like kind of hold our hands through this like once in a lifetime experience and like what to be ready for and and how to handle it because we did kind of like go into some sort of semi-retirement which is i think part of what you do it for right you want to have the big exit and then you know have your property and go racing and i went racing in europe and it just kind of was a low point which is kind of strange given if you like describe that lifestyle certainly if you posted an instagram about it it would be well liked you know <laughs> what would the guy have told you or done with you i don't think we ever really had to like learn how to be business owners and i think that that's at a high level and that's part of the reason i think we in retrospect sold the other business because it's really daunting to take care of so many souls and to have so many problems coming your way to not know what the future looks like and meanwhile, you go to a business broker and they say it's worth this much. And it's like, awesome. But that was like, you know, seven years of our lives to get to that point. And so I think the advisor could have helped structure those conversations and could have helped got them going earlier on the back end, which is like, what is your post exit plan for your businesses and have some clarity around that? It's just a lack of clarity. In retrospect, it is simple, like having clarity between partners around what the plan is. It's counterintuitive. Most people think, hey, you sold a company, you're rich, you can retire, like now you've got it. But it sounds like there's like some lists or mize of making money that this fantasy maybe isn't as much the reality. Like, how was that for you guys? It sounds like there's maybe something there with that. Well, first of all, it was a nice exit, but it wasn't like I'm done forever. So it was like at some point we had to get back to work. So there's that. I mean, I think if you're calculating like, is this a life changing exit to the point where I don't have to work ever again? You know, that's one situation where we're definitely not in that situation. So we're in the situation where it's like, hey, this is pretty comfortable. We can take some time off. We can invest some of this money, do some new things. You know, but again, like I think to Dan's point, it's like we didn't really have a plan. Like somebody put a number in front of us. We're like, that's great. Forward us our income for several years. We're out. And again, like Dan goes into a bunch of this in the, the book before the exit, like kind of what your options are. And I think it's worth it. Like we thought about all this stuff in retrospect, not so much when it was happening. I've had a lot of readers who come up to me and say, after I sold my business and I read your book, I totally resonated with everything. Sometimes it's hard to know something before you go through it. It's tough with exiting a business because you don't get to do it too often, typically. And it is this really profound experience. And it is your primary economic vehicle in the world. You gave up your career to do this in some sense, right? Your identity's attached to it. And now all of a sudden you got this cash pile that's dwindling every year. And every single next idea you have is smaller than the one you just sold by definition, unless you want to go out and become a new kind of entrepreneur and raise venture capital or whatever it is. And so I do think there's a lot of like just simple frameworks and thought experiments to walk yourself through before you exit a business that, you know, experienced people know about. And we didn't reach out to those people. Was the dream as good as you expected? How was the dream compared to what you imagined? One of the things about the dream for me, we talked about laptop. Some of the other things, <laughs> some of the other. <laughs> Dan still does not. He's a desktop. <laughs> <laughs> now I got a dongle. I've downgraded. Some of the other things on that list were we wanted to be able to work from anywhere. That was like on the dream line. And so in some sense, that lifestyle where you can spend the summer in Barcelona, where you're not worrying about what you're ordering at a restaurant, it's always the extra guacamole, as Ian says, that you do have the flexibility to, oh, start a new project or explore a hobby for a few months on end. Those are just table stakes. That's not the end. You still have to sort out all the hardest problems in life, like who are your key relationships? Who do you consider to be your family? Like, what's your health like? All those kinds of business goals, they're just table stakes, right? There's a finish line there. And so I think that that's the platform from which then you can do everything else. So that's a long way of saying 
Was the dream worth it? Yeah, because now we have the flexibility to take complete ownership over all those other choices and to have a sense of dignity and ownership. For me, it was a big problem that other people defined for me what I did and where I did it. For me, that's table stakes for life. That's the way I interpret what Ian was saying, like not liking that job. You know, I never had a job like where I was sitting around with guys like you and we were talking about something we were all aligned about. It was always this sense of coercion, like I need you to do this because I own you and you have debt. And for me, table stakes for life and the dream is not having that. And so, yeah, it was worth it. (laughs) (laughs) You get extra guac? (laughs) After an exit, you always get the extra guac. That's like, that's the life upgrade? Well... Yeah. I mean, it's a small thing. It's like $1.50 usually, but yeah, you get it. (laughs) How was the reality versus the dream you had? You dreamed of having money and the freedom and then you had it and and you got it. It's not, I don't think it's, uh, was it worth it? Yeah. You never feel like it's enough. Number one. Number two, you can never like do and buy all the things probably that you wanted to do. Like everything just gets elevated. Right. So it's like every year, you know, if you're not careful, like you get this lifestyle creep last year, you got three Amazon packages a day. Now you get five. Now you got all these more payments and this and that. So it's expensive to keep up with all this stuff. And I think you have to be careful about the lifestyle creep. So certainly I felt like it was a nice exit, but money never solves everything. You still have to figure out like what your purpose is. You still have to figure out like what drives you. You still have to figure out what motivates you, the people that you want to hang out with. All these problems, they like come back. The money might uh, uh, figure that out for you for a year or two, but then you're still sitting in the same position. One of the ways this manifests in our community, we've seen thousands of people go through this process, you know, is like we're so motivated away from the negative things we saw about like jobs and school and and parents and all this stuff. We're running, 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 running. It's like I'm running to Bali. I'm running to Europe. I'm running to the mountains or whatever. And I'm making my internet cash now. And then once we have all that freedom, we're kind of lost because we're terrified of opting into any kind of responsibility at that point because we conflate responsibility with all the negative inputs we had that drove us to do this stuff in the first place. Ian and I would marvel on earlier trips. It's like, man, look at Noah. Like He's really taking a lot of energy to that meeting. He's making tough decisions and he's really motivating people and stuff. And meanwhile, Ian and I are you know, eating an ice cream sandwich and playing Nintendo or something. And... Uh, but that's that's that's, that's inspiring that you choosing something to be responsible for the way you treat your YouTube channel, for example, like the level of content you bring to it. You don't need to, but you do. Like that's a responsibility. You've created the freedom. Now you opt in. That's a trend we see and we feel. And it's something that we're consciously fighting against. Is like, let's choose now. Let's choose to have a family. Let's choose to have a business because we have the freedom to do so. I think that's so surprising and very not talked about where people are like, oh, you get money and then it cures all the problems. It doesn't. You can't just sit on a yacht full time. <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I think the, the thing that's surprising to me, especially coming back to, I would say, work in the past 18 months, 15 months, was just how much more rewarding it was than being semi-retired. Right? Like, I think the dream of like, oh, you can do what you want all day. And some people maybe are really great at that. But having something kind of hard to go back to that you really actually enjoy and you get to choose for me, especially with AppSumo and the YouTube stuff to some extent is just like much more rewarding than kind of like for me, what I guess I'd feel flailing or just like floating around with like light projects. You know, we all have our chill projects. I think, you know, for me, it's like racing cars or, you know, working on my property or whatever. I think a lot of those things, though, they're self-fulfilling, like they're for me and for me only. Right. And then like 
once you do some of these projects, um, like the Dynamite Circle, now Dynamite Jobs, where like you're really impacting a lot of people and you're like you're helping them to change their lives, that work is uh, much more rewarding, I think, in the long run. Some of these personal projects, like they need to get done. I think it's good to get done, but working by yourself is fairly lonely, number one. Number two, in those projects, like a lot of times, like you're the only ones that can see the result, which I think is good for personal progress and whatnot. But you know, there's ways to like help yourself and help other people, I think, which is ultimately for me a lot more rewarding. Everyone out there is like, hey, you know, they started podcasts, which turned into a community. And props, for, by the way, I'm just, I just want to say, because I, I think people need to, to be called out on it. You were starting a podcast at a time where it wasn't like this big money making thing. And it's kind of come through waves. And so I, I want to encourage anyone, like follow the things that you're interested in, like you're interested in publishing and philosophy and thinking and culture and, and talking about those things. And it's like, well, I'm going to go and do this thing when there wasn't money coming in around it. So, so kudos to you around that. For anyone out there, just like if you're interested in something, just keep fucking going. Making money is not the hard part. Finding things you're interested in sticking with them, I find harder just sticking with it. Do you guys have any business ideas? People are out there like, yeah, I'll make some money. And by the way, for the audience, they were asking me to come on their show and talk about business ideas, which I'm like, I don't know. My only idea is absolutely. Here's an idea for you. You tell me. Here's a method for constructing a business idea oh, for a better. service company. And I've seen handfuls of examples of people do this where, you know, tech salaries are so damn high right now. Oh, and the reason is, is because it's driving value in these incredibly profitable companies. So I like the idea of finding a function of a specific professional in a company and fractionalizing it or turning it into a productized service. So a good example right now is you can check out like virtualcfo.co or greenbacktaxservices.com. Mm. There's a growthhit.com is a marketing agency that basically says, hey, do you need like a lead growth marketer in your company to the tune of like 180 grand a year, 150 grand a year? Or how about a service? We have multiple people a month doing it for six grand a month. And I think that that's an interesting way to get into business and it scales reasonably well past the seven figure mark. Like- yeah, so that's one just way to consider thinking of a love business that. idea. I like that you thought of it as a framework, not as like, okay, you can go do food delivery. It's like, well, let's think about how do we approach the ideas. That's great. I think it's a, about like falling forward. Like I told a little bit of my origin story. Like I worked as a valet attendant and then I got the degree, the understanding of manufacturing. And then I started manufacturing valet equipment because I started to understand the industry and, you know, the same thing with the bars. So I think it's like a matter of falling forward. Like, I've always like had this argument with people. It's like when I was 14 years old, I went and worked in a bicycle shop. That's how I know how to fix your pump, by the way. So good. <laughs> it's a very but, but I'm always very confused. And this happens when you're like 14 and when you're 41. I, I'm always very confused in people that like go work at the movie theater or that like work a job that isn't really related to like where they're going in life. I always thought it was like the biggest waste of time ever. So if you want to start a business, if your dream is to own a business, or if your dream is to just be awesome at your work and like make lots of money, like get yourself into an environment where you can do that. Like I've met very few business owners that weren't the best employee at whatever company they were working at before. And I've always like been a top performer at the companies I've worked in. And I've always done it in industries that I felt like were my next step or like a stepping stone to something else. So that's my advice for like business ideas, like working in an industry that's related to like where you want to go. Small plug for Dynamite Jobs, never been easier to start a business, never been a worse idea because the jobs out there are so amazing. You can like pinpoint what you're interested in on the web. So say I'm like myself circa 2005, forget about these big, boring educational companies in Austin, Texas. Like I can go work directly as a personal assistant for a premium blogger or someone who's starting a podcast network. 
I can work for free for months and convince them to pay for my cheap rent wherever I'm living outside of a main city, and I can build a career that way 100% remotely. And like Ian said, I'm interested. I'm going to be the top performer, so eventually I'm going to get the keys to the kingdom and start a business that looks a lot like the one I just worked at. That's a concept that we've really been fighting against because our careers topped out at a business that did $4 million in revenue. And so our skill set, our know-how, the experience of actually feeling running a $4 million business is the top experience we've ever had. We never worked at a $100 million company. We never worked at a unicorn tech startup. And so it's really difficult for us to mimic those things in our own business because we don't have that experience. So you can go get that experience at like an all-time ease and fun level right now. And I think that's really exciting. What industry or who would you go work for today if you guys had to get jobs? Uh, we're trying to build the number one remote hiring platform. So I'd probably like go work for somebody like Indeed if I had to get a job. Yeah, I think that's an easy call. We talk with our peers at those companies and it's exciting. We hadn't even really considered that thing in a long time because for a while these jobs didn't exist remotely. But now you talk to these people with really interesting careers in Indeed or, or brands like that. And you're like, man, I could do that. Like, that sounds fun. Yeah. You guys started remote working. When was the first time you guys worked remotely? Ballpark it. 2006, I guess. 2006. Around there. And then where was this? China. China. Yeah. So 2006, that's 16 years ago. Compare remote work then to remote work now. It's crazy. I mean, I remember my first long trip abroad, Dan, I don't know if you remember this, but I was trying to source motorcycle fairings aftermarket motorcycle fairings we had this idea we had aftermarket dash motorcycle <laughs> dash fairings.com <laughs> this 2006 time frame everybody <laughs> suck it matt cuts <laughs> <laughs> so we were running the valet company we had a warehouse and we had a guy in the warehouse i think skype had just become available we were playing all kinds of crazy games like I had my cell phone i think i like left my cell phone in america and like i dialed in to get the voicemails through Skype. And then I would like email the warehouse manager the order and then like he would send it out. But it was like at a time where the business hadn't got so big and so fast that like you couldn't pull all this stuff together. We were just a couple years, maybe a year past faxing because emailing attachments of our designs were too large of files, essentially. No iPhones? No iPhones. Being in China for 30 days, it was like very difficult to like run your business somewhere else. Like Basically, no one was doing it. I don't think I really knew anybody. That was kind of what we were so happy and proud about was like, we had this manufacturing business and like, we didn't have to be there. First of all, that was very weird. That was the story, essentially, yeah. of the podcast, you know, in the early days. Because no one would ever think to do that at that moment, you know? You'd have to have like a digital native business, which is why all the podcasts were talking about ebooks and stuff. And I think we immediately saw the future. Like, meanwhile, I'm in Manila hiring web developers because our dude in California could only work on the weekends and it was like 3,000 bucks a weekend or whatever and we couldn't afford it. Fast forward a year later, we have four full-time people working for us in Manila. And so, yeah, it was an exciting time. So something to think about like as it relates to today, one of the major changes that's actually happened just through COVID, a big part of the reason Dan and I started this business was like so we could travel, so we could be location independent and own our time. All of a sudden now, you can make a very good tech salary, right? Like easily mid six figures and be remote. So this is what's changed is like Dan and I've worked for like 15 years. And like all of a sudden, like now, if you like work at a tech company, like you can just be remote and like earn a <laughs> CEO level salary. Right. So that, that to me is like crazy. Is that like, we've been fighting for 15 years to be CEO or like location, independent entrepreneurs, business owners. And like, now you can just do that with your good job. So I think like if your goal is to be kind of location independent and like work from anywhere, 
it might be a better idea to do it as an employee than it would to go this path that we basically had to endure, which is like, hey, I have to start a business so I can do that. Now you don't have to do that. Maybe depending on your skill set and experience, rather than doing niche selection like we were doing back in the day, it might be better to do employer selection and then work your way up through an industry with that freedom rather than having to do it all on your own and learn it from scratch. Where could someone even go to find like a remote job though? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, are there any other kind of challenges? Like I went to China a few years ago and it was, it was a weird experience for me. So I can't imagine 2006 with how little infrastructure there is. Like compared to today, we walk into a co-working spot, all the internet works everywhere. Power lets grid everywhere, coffee, I don't know, just like there's not really that much of a delta work-wise. No, I can't really think of any. I mean, it's like you've got your couple days of setup in your new city, right? It's like three to four days, like figure out where to get lunch or whatever, but it's like you're plugged in immediately here. I mean, we just came back to Spain. Like we hadn't been here for three years. Like the internet has gotten like infinitely faster. The SIM cards are infinitely cheaper for the amount of data that you get. Like everything just seems to be like going up and to the right in terms of like the tools that we need to work remotely. Well, maybe looking back on COVID, the most fascinating thing is that the tools and the infrastructure have basically been sorted out years and years ago. Is that what COVID did was like break down the mindsets and the power structures. And I think that's the real story. Like the reason Facebook wasn't letting their employees work remotely had nothing to do with technology. Nothing. It had everything to do with politics, control, structure, and mindset. And like how those things cash out for each individual tech company, I think is really the story of COVID and remote work. Like it's fascinating to me, you know, what does middle management do when they can't hover over 15 souls in a space, right? Like those are real questions to be answered. There's still a role for middle management, of course, but like it's changing. And I think that's really fascinating. If someone was looking to get a remote job, obviously I'm done at my jobs.com. How can someone stand out? It's a good question. I think for a lot of people that are hiring remote, Having remote experiences is a good thing, right? Because it means that you can work a lot of times async. It means that you're responsible for your own time, performance, you know, all these things that remote companies, I think, value a little bit more than traditional companies, you know, that are in person. So I think having remote experience is a good thing if you can. If you cannot have remote experience, then I think there's this situation like, you know, Dan was telling the story when we were hiring developers and whatnot in Asia. Part of the reason we were hiring developers in Asia was because we couldn't afford to hire them in California. I think this is still happening with remote work at all different scales, which is basically now you can find the best talent at the best price if you're willing to go remote. And so I think on the employee side of that, like you're still at this point, like willing to give up some salary to have that remote experience or to work at that company that you want to work at. So I think like one way to stand out as like a remote employee is to like be flexible you know, in terms of your compensation potentially, because it might allow you to work at some of these unique companies that may not have the budget, but are like, you know, going up and to the right. So that's one thing I think is just like stay flexible. Maybe it means like taking a little bit less, but understanding that you have a little bit more freedom. It's a hard question because it's such a broad one. Because it's like, right. But one of the things I see really work, two little tips is like, one, have like a black box or a secret on your resume, like something that that employer could unlock and have access to. The classic way to do that is like you worked for a great company and they want to know what happened at that great company, but you could do it vis-a-vis an incredible result that you achieved, like really classifying your work as a person who creates results in organizations. And if you have to do it with a little bit of wordsmithing so that they can unlock that secret in an interview, I think that that's a good way to do it. Also, kind of diversify like when you talk to the hiring manager, especially if it's like a founder level person, talk to them as a peer that you're looking for a good fit, that you're not hoping to get a job, 
And typically, even if it's not a good fit, you'll get a conversation and then that can lead you to referrals and to opportunities to do a project or work for free or, or to find something that will parlay into a job. So and it also makes it worth your effort, right? Because one of the hardest parts about finding a remote job, if you don't have a lot of experience, say, is you got to apply to a bunch of things. It can be disheartening. So figuring out what your secret is, maybe instead of applying to 100 jobs, you spend time building something on the web that's interesting to potential employers, whether it's an Instagram account or a blog or just a white paper, and then applying to 10 jobs, you're going to get three or four conversations out of that white paper. Uh, are you guys, you guys want to play a game? Sure. Oh, yeah. I love All games. Right. Audience may be familiar with the Newlywed game. Since you guys have been together so long, I'm calling it the Oldlywed game. <laughs> nice do you guys think you know each other well we'll find out i guess we're gonna find out all right let's start off dan what is ian's favorite ice cream i definitely don't know this is it his favorite ice cream in barcelona or in general yeah you could do that i would say crema catalana ian no uh that is incorrect uh the correct answer is i opt for beer <laughs> as my choice of calories and i don't actually eat ice cream question for both what did you guys each think of each other when you first met i was threatened by ian because i had a policy that i would both behave older and more professional than i was and i would not be friendly with anybody at the the office in fact i had some active animosities going on in the office people i was trying to pressure to be better performers or move out of the organization and then ian shows up being all cool sidling up next to me talking about mutual interests offering to fix my car stereo one thing led to another <laughs> <laughs> and he totally cracked my facade yeah it's true it's true. I could I could tell that Dan was trying to keep his distance, and I was like, well, I'm going to get close to this guy. <laughs> if that's what he wants, then I'm not going to give it to him. <laughs> I found out that he liked music, and uh, I, I heard the the shitty sound system that he had in his second-generation Eclipse. <laughs> or wait, it was a third-generation, the worst-generation Eclipse. And I was like, well, I'm going to hook the, this the guy up with model. a subwoofer. I knew he couldn't afford to walk into Best Buy. <laughs> I, I could do it for half as much. What did you think of Dan? Uh, I was I was very interested because he was in a position of power at the organization that we we're at, and he was the same age. So I was like curious about how he got there. And then I think at a certain point we started to see each other as somebody that could help each other to kind of get out of our situation together. Dan, you can buy any car in the world. What car are you gonna get him? Mm, I'm gonna get him. Uh, I just get him a, a brand new green 911 GT3. I don't need to hear about this car anymore. Just drive it. Enjoy it. Uh, let's move on to some fun bike rides. <laughs> I would accept that gift. That would be the car that I want. <laughs> uh, right now, if Dan showed up with a 2022 uh, Touring Edition, I don't like the big wing. Uh, I'm getting a little bit older. GT3, I would be uh, manual, of course. Uh, I would be, uh, you know, it would it would really solidify our love. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> All right, Ian. Dan's truck. He's got a Toyota Tundra, an adventure mobile. You get a. You can make his license plate. What do you want to put on Dan's license plate? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. I think I have seven char characters. At least seven. Okay. <laughs> you know, Dan is. Uh, he's of German descent. <laughs> he does not like attention, believe it or not, like in that way. He likes to have the podcast. He likes that kind of attention. So I would normalize the license plate. I would just be some random numbers and letters. Oh, that's so loving. So he did not stick out. So loving. Yeah. Dan, that's very thoughtful. Thank you. 
I was already getting nervous about what he was going to put back there <laughs> and how I was going to have to live with that. You know, is it okay to cover it up? I don't know. <laughs> uh, Dan, what was Ian's favorite place for remote work? What was Ian's favorite place? Like country. You guys can both answer this one. Yeah. It's probably got to be here. I think here is the all-time best. We have uh, this tradition of renting an office, but we also have this like cool flex space where we can have meetings and podcasts. And it's just a nice group of people. And it's just, it's special to be able to sit next to each other for five hours a day and talk business. 100%. I agree. Are we doing pretty good at this game so far? Do you guys seem like you're sweating? Oldly weds. (laughs) Uh, This is, I don't know, it's part of the oldly wed game. What's uh, what's the deal with dynamite? I never really knew. Uh, That's... Good question for Dan. I can't remember. So we started Dynamite Circle, which we still um, uh, have, which is our community of uh, location independent entrepreneurs. I remember what the... It's not a good story, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's random, is the answer. At the time, I was like super intellectually curious about hyper-globalization of small businesses. So we started a Hong Kong business, and it had all these benefits, and like nobody at our scale was doing that. That was like purely a corporate, multinational thing. and. Our kind of whole thesis at the time was like, what if we could do what big companies were doing earlier? Also, the thesis of the digital nomad lifestyle is, what if you can live like wealthy people before you're wealthy? What if you can go around and poach the experiences that wealthy people have? Two months in Africa doing a service project or spending the summer in Europe. Like These are a bunch of digital nomads doing this. They're not rich, but they're poaching these wealthy experiences. Same deal with the company stuff. So we started a company in the Philippines. And we were like, well, we have a publishing arm, so we'll call it Dynamite Publishing. It was just like a holder name. Instead, you know, you're in Hong Kong, it's like Starry Mountain Limited or whatever. Basically, in Hong Kong, they like tell you what that you can pick from the list. There's like a hundred companies that you like- Like a shelf company, really? Yeah, it's a shelf company, basically. And so they're all like these like three words that don't make sense together. But they're lucky words, you know? (laughs) Anyway, that's the story. Ian. Yes. What makes Dan- a great partner for you. This is a therapy session. Well, um, I think that uh, what makes Dan a great partner is like we uh, uh, we both have like our independent skill sets and then uh, we come together and we try and lead together. This is fairly new too. I mean, I think in the past we were kind of running separate entities. Now we're kind of getting together on the same projects. So now we're having to kind of work together in a different way that we've never worked together. You know, Dan like leads the podcast. Like I couldn't do that show without him. And I think I do things that he couldn't do without me. And so I think it's like these complementary skill sets that really make our partnership strong. And then we try and come together on the leadership aspect of it. Dan, what traits about Ian helped him succeed in life that others can learn from? I think he's a high-level communicator. I think that's pretty common across. You see a lot of people that say like, oh, I'm not a good writer. And then they're this amazing writer of emails because there's a clarity to what they know what they're saying. And Ian's like that. I think the other thing about Ian that's helped him to be a top performer is that he's willing to see past the apparent structures of power and like see to the core and the truth of what's happening. And I think that is a super underrated and under talked about skill set for entrepreneurs. You have to see through what people are apparently talking about and watch the direction their feet are going or watch the actual flow of money rather than the price of something or something like that, right? You have to, and I think Ian's really good at picking up on truths that people aren't making apparent to you. 
So he doesn't believe the textbook, in other words. All right, Ian, how has Dan improved or inspired the way you live? Well, uh, I think Dan was like the a lot of the impetus of this travel thing. Like I was always curious about it, but um, Dan got to travel at a much earlier age. You know, I didn't have a passport until I went to China in 2020 in 2006 like my family didn't travel like no one in my family had like left the country you know and so dan had these uh trips when he was a teenager of like traveling abroad and so he's really the one that like opened up my eyes to this travel thing you know i didn't really have an idea about it and so you know dan started taking these trips and then i started thinking like well i'm gonna go on these trips i'm interested in these trips and so He's like really opened my eye into travel and like what's possible. And I think now we like share that together, which is pretty cool. Ian made our best product of all time, which I have nothing to do with. It's it's unnerving. His son, his family, he he outdid <laughs> the I thought that was incredibly inspiring. You know, in just a few weeks of work, he creates our best product of all time. And I think that I think that was actually really inspiring to watch that. So yeah, that's brought a lot of joy to my life. You guys have both inspired me a lot. And I think I've, I've shared that with you. Like how you approach things recently with relationships, how you approach biking and your planning. I mean, a lot of different things. I think Ian's very grounded as a human and knows who he is, what he likes and doesn't like, and, and is okay with that. Doesn't try to make anybody else, you know, give appease other people outside that they didn't have to. And I, I've always admired that. What's your guys' dream line today? And is where is that for you guys? You know, you talked about that 15 years ago. I'm curious where that is. And for the audience to think about your own dreamline, either for yourself or when you want to get in a partnership professionally or relationship-wise. Well, I'll say this about my dreamline. Like I had a, uh, 15 years ago, I had a 911 on there and I just got it and it's pretty rusted. <laughs> pretty rusted <laughs> now, so. These things, they don't always like come true the way that you think they would. But in terms of like the dreamline, I think that Dan and I are like, working close together to like identify what it is. Again, it's like about alignment. So there's going to be things that I want that he doesn't want, you know, and there's things that he wants that I don't want. But it's like, do we have enough together in alignment that it makes sense to like grow this business? Um, and I think the answer for us is yes. And every day we have to like work together to make sure that we're in alignment on that. I think my answer is like, we did a dreamline a few years ago for an episode and it kind of like every item is like, well, if you want that, you could go get it now or whatever. And what we can't have is this vision of an enterprise that pays us X number every year from a cash flow basis. That's a family business that employs the kind of people we want to employ at scale. So I think at the at the level we're at with our enterprise where we're over 15 employees and stuff and we've got a lot of revenue coming in, it's really about being responsible to that business and growing that. And we ha we're trying to figure out precisely what that means for our roles, for our inputs, for our strategies. But I think for that personal dream line, that's more of like an ongoing thing. Like, do you want to spend the summer in Barcelona? Like, you know, do you want to do this? Do you want to buy, you know, buy the car? Like, I think those things are a little bit more straightforward nowadays. Agree. Also, but the 911, the green 911 would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> All right. We're now going to the final conclusion of our episode. <laughs> What do you think my audience would be surprised to find out about me? <laughs> well, I think one thing about you, Noah, believe it or not, is like you're a very generous person. In terms of like hanging out, I think, you know, that probably comes through in some way on like your YouTube channel and on this podcast. But like, I think what people may or may not understand is like, you don't have to do any of this stuff. Like you're genuinely interested in helping people. And that's part of this show. That's part of your YouTube. But then also in like daily life, like you're just very generous in the way that you operate. And I appreciate that. Like as a friend and then also as somebody that I consider in some ways like as a mentor too. You know, we sit down in the office here that we're sharing. You know, a lot of your calls that you're having with your team, like they're out loud. 
because you don't own a set of headphones or something. Anyways, <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways, I benefit from it because I get to hear the way that you operate and you operate at a very high level. And I think you're generous to a lot of the people that you're talking with, but then also it's generous to me personally because I get to see the way that you operate this large company. And so I'm really appreciative of that. And I don't think a lot of people probably know that about you. Yeah, that's the easiest thing that I think that people know you would say about you is is like how generous and kind and thoughtful you are. So the other side of it that I think people would be surprised to see, but not surprised to know, is how aggressive and competitive you are. So it's the opposite side of that, which is like you're gonna get it done. And when you see that look in Noah Kagan's eyes, like <laughs> you can understand why he's the CEO of a big company, right? And so sometimes it's easy to think when you listen to podcasts and read books that, oh, I'm just going to apply good ideas and I'm going to be thoughtful. I'm going to be do my passion and stuff. And it's like, yeah, we'll also fucking get it done. And at some point, there needs to be somebody in any organization who has the cojones to do very difficult things that nobody else, even high paid people, aren't willing to do. And that's often what it takes to start a business partnership or to leave a job or to tell somebody that you can no longer be with them, or to decide that you're going to make a difficult change in your business. And I think you're capable of that. And that's why you're in the position you're in. Just to piggyback on that, like to give a small example, I think you push things to their logical ends very quickly too. So like, we're all talking about like how much we love Barcelona and like, you know, next step is like, uh, maybe get a place here. There's a lot of bureaucracy, but maybe it might be cool. Within 24 hours, like you've contacted a realtor, You've started a spreadsheet. There's a WhatsApp group. <laughs> like you've uh, thought about all the obstacles or you're starting to identify them, right? And so it's like you're really good at pushing things to the logical end. I think that's just part of being aggressive is like you don't leave a lot of room for questions. Time compression. Yeah. It's kind of a time compression. Yeah. Love you guys. Thanks. That was nice. Hands in. Trace Amigos on three. One, two, three. Trace Amigos! Trace Amigos! That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as I did recording it for you with my very best friends out here in Barcelona, Spain. Go give them some love at Tropical MBA Podcast. That is their podcast. And if you are looking to hire or you're looking for a job, dynamitejobs.com. It's a really great site. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go race cars together. And before you go, tweet at me, DM me on Instagram or TikTok at Noah Kagan. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Also, remember to go subscribe to my email list. I put my best tips into a single short email each and every week and hook up exclusive content to you great email subscribers. That's sendfox.com slash Noah, sendfox.com slash Noah. Also, create your own newsletter. Finally, a couple of shout outs to the amazing team, Jason at podcasttech.com for making these podcasts sound so much better than the original versions. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen from the Dork team for helping put everything together. And finally, shout out to the leadership team over at AppSumo. Uh, I am very blessed, very blessed to have such amazing people I get to work with every single day doing awesome stuff at AppSumo.com. You guys rock. Have a sunshiny day. Ooh, what's your favorite hot sauce? Spicy. Spicy.